Welcome to episode 25 of the Brown and Black podcast. My name is Jack Rico. And I'm Mike Sargent. And every week we take a look at race and pop culture through a brown and black lens. On today's episode, we talk to author and historian Paul Ortiz about his book, An African-American and Latinx History of the United States, and the parallels history tells us today about our current war with what American identity is. First of all, Mike, uh, let's talk a little bit about this pandemic. What's it like in New York right now? I mean, the mayor, the governors, are they closing everything down? Is it lockdown in the city right now? Well, they we're approaching lockdown. The New York City schools just closed. That was yeah, I just heard that. Re- that just literally was announced today. Bill de Bla- Mayor Bill de Blasio announced today. We're recording this on Wednesday that the schools are closed because we've reached that 3% test positivity threshold that was set down, I believe, by the governor. So uh, the irony of that, interestingly enough, is meanwhile, um, Thanksgiving's coming up. Uh, and if you read in, 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 the, in the news uh, what happened in Canada during the Canadian Thanksgiving, their Canadian Thanksgiving was a disaster for COVID. And they're, they're having the hugest spikes of ever. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, but I heard there's, there's uh, experts begging people to forego yes. All yes. holidays yes. until the vaccine is in our body. So I think you know, this is what America is fearful of, of the inability to to keep them away from doing the things that they love. Well, and you see, what's interesting about that to me as a person of color is that this this society is considers their uh, not being able to do the things they have taken for granted for so long, the freedoms they have taken for granted, all the pleasures and, and luxuries, they see just wearing a mask as, as in some way violating their liberties and their rights. They wouldn't last one day as a person of color. I'm sorry. These white Talk people, about white they fragility, right? Day. They wouldn't last a day. What are you kidding? I wish all we had to deal with. Imagine if all black and Latin people had to wear masks, and that's what we were fighting. We're protesting. We had everything else, but we had to wear masks. Imagine that. So I'm not going to ask you anything about Thanksgiving because we're going to leave that for the Thanksgiving episode, but um, I did want to kind of just quickly cover, dude, with, with Trump, every single state has already said, I think almost every single state, Pennsylvania Supreme Court just came down with the mandate that like, listen, we're, we're this isn't permissible in court anymore. Correct me if I'm wrong, Mike. Don't you think Donald Trump at some point went, dude, did what Wolf Blitzer say was, he did he just say I'm the president of the United States? Well, what? Okay. I, I guess I'll be the president. And then four years later, he's like, you know that song from The Greatest American Hero? Look at what's happened to me. I can't believe it myself. Suddenly I'm up on top of the world. It should have been somebody else. Believe it or not, I'm walking on air. I never thought I could be so free. You remember that song? Yeah, I must say, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I did cut out Jack singing the song. You'll thank you'll thank me later. Okay. <laughs> but don't you 
you think this guy thinks that the whole thing was a con and that he can't believe he got away with it this far and now he's he's in on the joke and now he's just going back to normal life with his brand and his empire as an, an all-time high in not in terms of character but in terms of uh, of, of popularity dude do you really want me to respond because like how no, how, no, how, no, how, no, how long how no, long do we have Wanted to quickly talk to you about the big news that came out about Wonder Girl. Just by the name of itself, you know, you're thinking it's just another female superhero that's going to make their way into the new woke Me Too Time's Up um, world that we're living in. But no, Wonder Girl is actually a Latina, a Latinx character from DC Comics. I had never heard of her. And they're now going to create a TV series around it at the CW from Dialene Rodriguez. And for those of you who might not know her, she is the executive producer of Queen of the South, La Reina del Sur, but on the USA Network on NBC. And uh, looks like she wrote it. It centers around Yara Flor. I love the fact that it's a Latina name too, who is a Latina dreamer who was born of an Amazonian warrior and a Brazilian river god. Uh, she learns that she is a wonder girl. And with her newfound power, she must fight the evil forces that would seek to destroy the world. Haven't I heard that part before somewhere? Well, superheroes are always <laughs> saving the world, dude. I mean, that's what we do. I know. But why doesn't that old trope get boring? My opinion on that is I believe that, you know, in civilization has always had heroes and icons that they, that they either pray to or that they, sh you know, shared stories of, you know, Greek mythology. Superheroes are just today's Greek mythology. Why did those heroes endure? Because wrapped up in them at, at their best, they're saying something about what it is to be human. And at its core, I think we all want to be saved. This would mark the first time a Latina superhero title enters the DC TV series universe. Rodriguez, who is the daughter of Cuban immigrants, is executive producing. Okay, so we've been talking about putting in people of color in positions of power. Check. It's happening, Mike. Now, image re representation. We've been talking about it, Mike. Check. Mm -hmm. It's happening. The Biden administration, from what I heard, they hired three Latinos. Yes, they for did. for his uh, staff. First of all, I think that that. What do you think? What are white people afraid of? What what are what is the power those in power afraid of? They're afraid that we take over. Not, and but not that we take over, but that we would take over, and then what would happen to them? Okay, you know, th there's this phrase they say. But, but, what, but, but what is the fear, though? But what is the fear, though, that that we're going to kill them? Retaliate, put them, make them. You, if you ever hear the narrative, if you ever watch any of these videos, the people who hate Black Lives Matter, the reason they hate Black Lives Matter is because they feel it means their lives doesn't matter. Because when they say white power, what they mean is everybody else's crap. We're the best. We're, that's what it means for them. So. No, I don't think uh, to me, part of the reason I do this show with you and part of the reason and, and, and the reasons always deepen over time, especially with some of the conversations we have with people is that we are we have to unify. We have to unify. And the only way to unify is to embrace not only our our all, all the things, the things we have in common, but embrace like, wow, Jack, what is that 
food you made? What is that music you're listening to? What is that story you told me? What is this thing about your culture that I have do not have in my culture? Or maybe I have something similar. That exchange, and that's something we talk about, that exchange is the future. Okay, Mike, it's time to talk to historian and author Paul Ortiz about his book, An African-American in Latinx History of the United States. You know, incredible how this guy wrote a book that is essentially the DNA and essence of our show, Brown and Black. Absolutely. Uh, And, you know, it really, the importance of this book, uh, and I, I couldn't emphasize more because it changes knowing where you came from or having a better idea of the history tells us exactly where we are right now. Let's begin with the reason that you wrote this book. You could mention hundreds of other authors and writers that are either Latino or Black that did not write this book. Um, was it that you saw something in the market that there was a hole there and you needed to fill it? Was that the main thing? Or was this a personal cry for, for, for you to do this? Was this a personal uh, catharsis that you needed to get to to just get this out of your system and share it with all of us? Yeah, I mean, I, I love, the, love the question. You know, it, it's all of those things. It's very, the book is very personal. Um, it draws on experiences, you know, that I had when I was growing up, um, also in special forces in Central America, um, some really, uh, uh, you know, powerful experiences, you know, which I was reflecting on this week anyway, because of course, you know, Veterans Day and people have asked me to, to talk about, you know, that set of experiences. It's also really dedicated to my students. But the other thing I wanted to share too, is that I, you know, I was on a panel last week with uh, my dear uh, friend and colleagues, uh, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, who, of course, wrote the wonderful book on Indigenous People's History in the United States, and then uh, John Fernandez, who wrote uh, just wrote an incredible book about the Young Lords, you know, the Puerto Rican Liberation Organization. And the three of us were just kind of talking during the panel and realizing, you know, none of our books really come out of um, academic um, you know, generated concerns as much um, because like when, when I was starting to publish in academia, you know, as a graduate student, as a junior faculty member, um, there was no benefit. You didn't get any props for doing work that we call now intersectional work. When I studied immigration history, it, it became really clear quickly, you know, academics specialize in the study of conflicts, of competition. We live in a bourgeois capitalist society, and so we're, we sometimes we don't even realize it, but we're trained to study people, we're trained ourselves to compete with each other. And the society I grew up with, and I, I try to talk about this a little bit in the author's note in the book, the society that I grew up in was what I would call a zero-sum society. Um, I grew up in the backlash era in the 70s, because I was born in 1964, where white uh, Anglo individuals, as we call them back then, were trained in schools, in society, in politics to understand that if black or brown people made any gains Mm -hmm. in society, it was at the expense of Anglo or white people. That's how 
our society trains us to understand citizenship as a zero-sum game. I try to use this book to explain how false that idea is. Um, but I think that stands in the way that that mentality, that kind of bourgeois, we call it racial capitalism. Cedric Robinson, of course, uh, is a real pioneer of the term. But racial capitalism also teaches us to see each other as competitors. And so, you know, if Mike makes a gain, then I, I'm trained to see that as a loss for me. Um, the kind of history that I'm that I oh wow, so that's where the comp the competitive nature between our groups comes from. That's the deep-rooted sort of sensibility, right? It is. And scholars, again, Jack, are trained. I mean, if you, if you, if you were trained in immigration history, for example, you were trained to see that, you know, you, know, you had you know, English immigrants, uh, so-called, in the early 19th century, then Irish, um, then Scots, uh, and then, you know, Eastern European, then Jewish, Lithuanian, et cetera, et cetera. And you're taught frameworks where each of those groups is in some kind of competition with the other. But certainly when you look at the way that African-American uh, and Latino histories are taught, uh, I think they also, at their worst, they have been taught with that kind of zero-sum mentality in mind because they've been taught in such a segregated manner. Um, and that was so always so bizarre to me because as a younger organizer with the United Farm Workers, and other labor uh, uh, organizations I was involved with, you know, if, if, if you didn't have black and brown workers, you didn't really have anything. Um, and, you know, yes, there's competition. Yes, there's tensions. But when I started doing even deeper research, then my own experiences were that um, the solidarities, uh, the mutual aid, the cooperation, and those are things we learn outside of official institutions. Like, you don't go to, you know, grade school doesn't teach you how to cooperate with people in capitalist America, you know, it teaches you to compete against each other, right? And so it's, it's you know, I was talking to Roxanne and Joanna about this, um, you know, even after the after this election, so frustrating because, you know, you read these things, you know, they, they would bring up Miami-Dade over and over and over again, say, you know, look at the Latinos dragging everyone down, you know, they're so reactionary down there and stuff. And people not, and, and I'm like, well, yeah, but, you know, you may think you know what's going on down there, but number one, you don't. Number two, you know, look at places like um, Las Vegas or Maricopa County, you know, Arizona, uh, or, you know, parts of Missouri where, where Latinos turn the tide against Donald Trump. And without those votes, uh, Donald Trump would probably have been reelected. So, for example, in the book, in Chapter 8, I talk about the rise of the Culinary Workers Union in, in Las Vegas that union plays such a pivotal role in electing Barack Obama to, yeah. to, to, to the presidency. And yet you rarely ever hear about this incredible organization of you know, 60,000 people there. They're, they hail from 84 different nations in the planet. Actually now I've heard it's 90, it's almost a hundred um, led primarily by black and brown women. And how many times do you see them getting kind of a marquee, you know, a front page, you know, Washington post, LA times, you know, story. You know, the older I get, the more cliches are not really cliches. They're really large pieces of wisdom. And, you know, the, the cliche of if you don't know where you've been, then you'll have no idea where you're going uh, is a cliche, but I think it's very apt here. Uh, I want to know if you could talk a little bit about um, how important it is to have an understanding of history and specifically our contributions to history. You know, it's important, I think, 
sure for white folks to realize what we've been through and what we've how we've contributed, but how important do you think it is for black and brown folks not only to know their history, know how we work together, but also see how we're being pit against each other. Uh, and because we really don't know the history, we don't really have a sense of where we are in the, in the scheme of things. It is vital because, I mean, and both for personal reasons and for political reasons. What I mean for personal reasons is that in our communities, uh, in the communities that I was raised in, you know, we're, we often imbibe and unfortunately internalize self-hatred uh, about our ancestry, about where we come from, because we grew up in working class communities. You know, what Perry Thomas called down these mean streets. You know, I grew up in a shipyard town. Uh, there was a lot of poverty. You know, we, we were plagued by white social workers. You know, they're all, they're all over the place. You know, and so we were made to feel, you know, like second class citizens. And again, there's nothing in the society to, to tell us, oh, well, actually, no, you actually come from really uh, cool uh, histories. Every diaspora, and talking you know, with, with Roxanne and um, Joanna about this a few, uh, uh, last week, every diaspora that we have, whether it's from Africa or Asia or Latin America, the Caribbean, you know, has these amazing histories of struggle, of resistance, of building democracy. And because we're not told these things or taught these things, unless we're really lucky, um, we often imbibe self-hatred. And I'll just kind of borrow from my dear friend and colleague, uh, Ibram Kendi, who talks about this in his work on anti-racism. You know, growing up, you know, and I've talked to Ibram about this one-on-one, -on -one, you know, growing up, we each imbibe these terrible stereotypes, you know, about African-American, and in my case, Mexican-American people. So, you know, laziness, uh, dishonesty. I mean, you, you, all you do is turn on the, the TV in the weekend and you imbibe, you know, you may see John Wayne in Alamo, you know, oh, wow, Mexicans are just bad people. Not realizing that the Anglos in that fort, uh, the Alamo, uh, were pro-slavery people, you know, and the Mexicans were anti-slavery people. So on a personal level, um, this is why learning our histories is so important. On a political level, Mike, and then getting back to your point about the, the conflict and, and cooperation, I, even before we talk about cooperation, it's important to understand like where our rights come from, why we as peoples have survived, how we, what we've gained, what we have gained in the society. And when I do talks and I'm looking at an audience, you know, and, and there's like 60, 70% people of color, women, Jewish people, et cetera, et cetera, I often pause and I tell them, look, everyone here in this room, none of us were would have been considered to be equal citizens or even deserving of rights by people like Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, none of them, right? And so how is it that we're sitting here together talking and having a, a conversation about these things? How is it that we have we build a level of stability that we can do these things. Well, it's because our ancestors struggled and fought so hard um, and we don't give them credit. They're not given credit in the textbooks or in the media or by the political parties. And so that's another reason why the history is so important because we need to understand why we have achieved what we've achieved. The, the, the society has given us nothing. The federal government has given us nothing that we haven't fought for. The last thing I'll mention, Mike, is that Oftentimes, my university students will say, you know, why do I have to wait until my senior year in college to learn about how the civil rights movement started? 
Or why do I have to wait until I'm 21 years old to learn about, you know, the, the United Farm Workers or, you know, or, or the Young Lords? No self-respecting government is going to tell you a history, is going to teach you a history that's going to allow you to have the tools to change that system, right? You're going to have to, I mean, you're lucky you're learning it now. <laughs> you're lucky that I, you know, people like you know, Angela Davis and Cedric Robinson and, you know, Carlos Munoz and Roxanne Ortiz created a space for people like me to be able to 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 do this in, in the academy. But I can't always I can't guarantee that that space is gonna you know is gonna continue uh, because the kinds of histories that we teach. If you look again at people like Angela or Howard Zinn uh, or Stottlin or Roxanne, I mean they were under siege. You know, much much of their academic career. Talk to me about recontextualizing and, and, and maybe the power of words and how we understand things, how we take in things, and how it can change. You know, Hollywood has, has carried out the most incredible propaganda coups that you, one can imagine. One is that, of course, initially in its early history, they turned slavery into, you know, kind of a, almost like a picnic, right? Um, and they also turned colonialism. They did some really really evil things, both with slavery and colonialism. Uh, what I mean by this is that, you know, when you look at the history of, say, the British, um, I'm just finishing a book right now by Cecil Woodham Smith called The Great Hunger. And it's about the Irish potato famine. You know, Woodham Smith was, was knighted. She, she, had, she earned all the honors you could earn as an academic within the British system. But she's really clear. I mean, the people that, the colonial authorities that ran Ireland were, were savages. They doomed over 2 million people in Ireland to starvation, to the most painful death one can, can, can uh, suffer, death by starvation. You have people starving, okay, let's export grain from their country. Uh, let's create a situation where people can profit from famine. That's what they did. Uh, let's create a system where we're going to tax people so much and we're going to take advantage of the famine. This is what British colonial authorities did to, to the people of Ireland. They said, well, we prefer larger farms anyway. So let's use the famine as an excuse to push these millions of small farmers off the land. Does that sound familiar? It should, because it's International Monetary Fund a century and a half later. But now we're looking very carefully. You know, colonialism means starvation, frankly. And in fact, wow. the, the British were causing starvation. I mean, even as late as World War II, I mean, literally less than 10 years after they were forced to leave India, they were still imposing famine on the people in India. Uh, and so that, that's real colonialism. Um, and so there's no surprise uh, that countries like France, uh, the United States, Great Britain have tried to uh, soften colonialism. In fact, um, when my wife and I were in France in, I think, was it 2005 or a subsequent visit, the, um, the French government was trying to pass a law designed to teach, requiring all schools in France to teach the positive elements of colonialism. You know, you're like, what the hell? I mean, damn, I mean, you know, like, like where? Like in Martinique in Algeria, where you, you put people into concentration camps and you wiped out entire, you know, villages that still have never recovered the population. Like what's so, what's so positive about that? You know, there's an attempt, I would argue, to re-romanticize colonialism, slavery, Check out the musical Hamilton, um, right. you know, and, and oh my gosh, I mean, and now they're saying, oh, new research shows 
that Alexander Hamilton was actually pro-slavery. Well, that's, that, that's, that, that's nonsense. The old research showed that. You know, it took me like one hour at Homeboy's papers to realize this guy was pro-slavery. He demanded the return of all the African-American slave, former slaves who had evacuated with the British in 1783. He harangued the Continental Congress. Get our prop, this is our property. You need to get it back. The British have violated the Treaty of Paris. This is our property, talking about black people. So why does Wall Street back that kind of mythification about this, about this guy? So um, we're going to see more of this, and we need to be very, very aware. We're going to see much more of this kind of re-romanticization of, of things we, you know, that we never thought we'd see, maybe. 1865, the, the, the civil rights movement, blacks and whites were the conversation. In 1865, where were the Latin? Why didn't white Americans enslave Latinos, Mexicans, Colombians, uh, Peruvians, Bolivians? Why weren't they a convert? Why did white Americans go, hey, if we have the whole black population here as slaves, why can't we do the same thing with Latinos and Asians? They, they tried to. And so I didn't go much into this, but we have, there's this group of people called filibusters. And uh, the, the slave power, the, the pro-slavery uh, 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 politicians and business leaders and so on and so forth, uh, actually sent missions of Anglo uh, uh, settlers and soldiers into Mexico and Central America uh, in the 1840s and 1850s to try to reimpose slavery in those societies. And so the efforts were made, believe me, they, they, they were made by Anglo people. And that's also by the way, what the three Seminole Wars were about in what became Florida. The United States attempting to enslave people uh, and take over the, you know, take over La Florida from the Spanish Empire. And that's why indigenous people and um, uh, former slaves in, in Florida fought so hard. So yeah, it wasn't because of a lack of effort. And in the 20th century, you know, once the U.S. took over what became Mexico, um, slavery by then was simply not profitable. And so there were other systems like, you know, debt peonage, the convict lease, uh, you know, uh, stealing people's land. I mean, that, I talk about that in the middle of the book, you know, uh, Mexican uh, small farmers, you know, being driven off their land by the Texas Rangers. So by that point, there's really no need to, to enslave. Plus, the other thing is, you know, the Anglos didn't hold down the Southwest. I mean, that was held down by the Spanish, you know, up until the 1810s. So the question you're asking, Jack, would be a question you would ask about, say, for example, Cuba. Um, and there, Anglos had a tremendous investment in slavery in Cuba. In fact, this is why I, I talk in the book about why African-Americans were unable to get the Ulysses S. Grant, his administration, to come out against Spanish oppression in Cuba because the folks in Wall Street probably by that time owned half of the plantations in, in Cuba. Um, and, and, of course, the Spanish Empire still had slavery, uh, you, know, after, you know, after the U.S. Um, after it was abolished in the U.S. But the other question, Jack, I think you're, you're pushing us to understand is, you know, uh, racism is more than a binary system. And so my father uh, grew up, our people came across, uh, came to the U.S. in the middle of the Mexican Revolution 
1914. So the world my father grew up in was a world where you had these signs in Houston and Dallas and Santa Fe and, you know, uh, Miami, where you have these signs saying, you know, no Negroes, no Mexicans, no dogs. And they were pretty ubiquitous. Like my father was a busser in a, a number of Houston restaurants in the, in the you know, in the late 40s and early 50s before he went to the U.S. Marines. And, you know, he said basically that the police were always on the lookout for young uh, uh, black and Mexican kids. And, you know, if they caught you, then it was hell. And, I mean, there's places in Houston that we don't even talk about. Uh, there's one place where the police would actually take young black and brown teenagers and beat them to death. And uh, I know where the place is. I could take you to this place, but we do not talk about it. Um, it was a big warehouse, a kind of an old fact, uh, abandoned factory, you know, complex. And but these are the stories that we we grew up with, and uh, and they're much more kind of gritty and real. And but see, that gets back to the point you, you, that you all started us off with: is why are we so afraid of our history? What what is it about our history? which causes us to kind of shy away from it. Um, and so sometimes, ugly. yeah, I mean, there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of trauma. And that's always an issue that I have to deal with when I'm working with communities talking about, you know, anti-racist um, education, especially is, is you got to start by talking about the hard spots. Cause that's usually where we get kind of tripped up and we were like, Oh, Hey, let's stop there. You know, that's the, let's, let, let's not go any further. You know, that's, it's, it's a lot different than learning, to recite, you know, the Declaration of Independence. We're in a time where, you know, as a radio person and doing podcasts, you know, what we're talking about, we're living in a historical time. Like, we'll be talking about what's going on here 30, 40, 50 years from now. Can you talk about the importance of an oral history and maybe how, in the time we live now, how an oral history can be co-opted? Because if all you're hearing is one kind of narrative, if they're paying, they're offering a million dollars for someone to come up with voter fraud, you know, like I want to call like, hey, I was there, you know? So <laughs> I, I, I just want to get to the, the importance of oral history and maybe just how that can, you know, how it can be preserved and how it can be co-opted. Most of the sessions I've done, since the Black Lives Matter democracy movement has really, you know, re-erupted uh, since last spring, so many of these sessions I've done with school districts, you know, teachers' workshops, you know, high school kids, uh, middle school kids, it's the high school students who are demanding a new curriculum. It is so exciting to me. It's so much like the, say, the Chicano blowouts of 1968 you know, where thousands of Chicano, Mexican, but also black and white students walk out of class in East Los Angeles and demand to be taught their parents' histories, their people's histories, right? This is happening now, not just in one city. That's happening all over the country. And, and I've witnessed this. And, and there's a new kind of student who, you know, maybe they're, maybe they're Haitian, and they show up in a South Florida high school or in a New York high school. And they're like, you know, where, where are my people's histories here? You know, why, why don't you talk about the Haitian Revolution? Uh, why don't you talk about the U.S. invasion of Haiti in, in 1915 and its legacies? Why don't you talk about the fact that it's Haiti, which invents the idea of equality 
between nations. And, and there's more uh, momentum now, even among high school students, teachers, and parents to completely redo the curriculum. Um, I've spent a lot of time, for example, with the state of Connecticut. In Connecticut now, all high school graduates will take courses in African-American history, Latinx history, and Puerto Rican history. You will learn about West African civilizations in the 10th, 11th, 12th centuries. You'll go back even, even further to the Iron Age in Africa. Um, you will learn about indigenous American cultures prior to, US, prior to, to, to European uh, colonialism. These are not electives. These are not things you do after gym. These are requirements. So I've been doing teachers' workshops uh, for almost three decades now. And when I started doing teachers' workshops on these topics, on black history, on Mexican or Latino history, it was always like, oh, well, you know, Professor Ortiz, um, this is going to be an elective. Uh, this is going to be an extra thing that students are going to get the chance to, to, to participate on if they choose. Now, the entire state of Connecticut has said this is a requirement. And the reason, it's not because the state of Connecticut is more woke or more intelligent or, you know, whatever. It's because, again, this, it's a new kind of student that's demanded a new kind of curriculum. Can you name a couple of instances throughout history where blacks and Latinos have come together to create something beautiful? Are there any instances, historical instances that you can come up with right now? You can let us know, maybe two or three, where blacks and Latinos came together to unite, to unify to overcome a big obstacle. Yeah, the, you know, the, the Steelworkers Organizing Committee in the 1930s is one example. Uh, in fact, I'm teaching U.S. labor history right now, and the roles that black workers and Mexican-American and Puerto Rican workers played in organizing the steel industry was absolutely pivotal. And it, it, it was a hard uh, organizing campaign. I mean, industrial unionism in the 1930s is probably one of the best examples you, you can point to when you talk about black and brown unity because the rise of mass industrial unionism in the 30s, that's what makes the New Deal possible. Wow. That's what, that's what makes, you know, collective bargaining, the middle class society we have now doesn't exist unless we had millions of workers in the streets agitating. And the steel industry and the mining industry in particular, if you look at the Southwest, you know, that's primarily Mexican-American workers. You look at the steelworking industry from like uh, corporations like Inland Steel around Chicago or Gary, uh, U.S. Steel and Homestead and Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Now you're talking about you know tens of thousands of black and brown workers. The 1937, uh, uh, what we call the Little Steel Strike, uh, was an effort to organize hundreds of thousands of workers in the smaller steel uh, factories. Fast forward to May 1937. Uh, the police fire upon a, a, a group of primarily Mexican-American uh, workers on strike, kill 10 of them. Uh, we call that the Memorial Day Massacre. Uh, that's one of the many events that you probably didn't read about in your history book, because that's only supposed to happen in other countries, right? Um, so the steelworkers organizing campaign in the 1930s would be one concrete example where you find black and brown workers organizing uh, in unity around a big goal. But you're not going to find that much in the textbooks. Look, I just reviewed a major new U.S. history textbook, and it had not a word about industrial union organizing in the 1930s. It wanted to give all the props to Franklin Roosevelt, all of them. 
and, and maybe to Eleanor Roosevelt a little bit, you know, maybe to Francis Perkins, the Secretary of Labor, because again, they don't want us to know the role that working class people make in change. The other example um, I would love to share with you is uh, my own, in my own organizing experience, the farm worker movement, the rise of the farm worker movement is connected intimately to That's right. the African American freedom struggle. But if you look at what people like John Lewis uh, and Diane Nash and, and, and uh, Lawrence Giot, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, those legendary you know, SNCC organizers, they were promoting the great boycott uh, wherever they went. And so, you know, that was, you know, there's many of these examples of black and brown, you know, solidarity, unity. The other one I'll mention, see, now you made a mistake because you, you asked me a question. We could be here all day. <laughs> realize we just did. <laughs> yeah, but the, the last one I'll mention is, um, you know, the Rainbow Coalitions. Uh, the first Rainbow Coalition, the second Rainbow Coalition. I had the great honor to be able to participate a little bit in the second Rainbow Coalition. And there was tremendous uh, elements of black and brown, LGBT. That's where I learned, you know, LGBT politics, you know, from uh, comrades and organizers who taught me about the proud traditions of, of, of LGBT, uh, LGBT organizing. Uh, the Rainbow Coalition was like a, um, it was like a laboratory for community organizing. So anyway, you know, it's, it's um, yeah, these are really, really important questions. I, I guess one of the other things I would love to hear your thoughts on um, just is how you think we can come together better, especially as, as Blacks and Latinos, you know, the, the thing I think that people forget, you know, when they say, oh, look what happened in Miami. Well, that should say something about the power of the Latino vote. It makes it, it's like there's power there. You know, why, you know, whatever side you want to, you know, you can't ignore it. You can't take it for granted. Uh, and I think there's a, you know, both the Democratic and the Republican Party have been guilty of taking the black and Latino vote for granted. Probably Democrats a lot more. But what do you think would be a, let's just say, a method of us to come together, or, you know, besides clearly education? It's, been ha it's happening even as we speak. Uh, I'll mention just two groups I can think of right now. One of them is actually in Miami-Dade, uh, South Florida People of Color. It's a really solid organization. And they brought me down a couple of times, one time to do specifically a workshop on anti-black uh, anti racism within Latino communities in Miami-Dade. So increasing number of groups are doing this. I guess the short answer is, it's gotta be a collective effort. It can't just be one methodology or one group. It really helps if there is an organizing campaign to, to work on. And I actually learned this, even after I've been an organizer, um, one of my mentors at UC Santa Cruz, John Brown Childs, uh, 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 he'd be a wonderful person, by the way, to have in your, your program. And John did a lot of work um, with Black and Latino gangs in California prisons and trying to build solidarities there. And he has a whole theory about how you bring people together. It comes about first through action and then reflection. And his argument is that people often make the mistake of saying, well, hey, let's just sit around at a table and talk about our feelings and do an icebreaker. He's like, no, that's not the way you start things. You start things by, by having people work together on a mutual campaign. See, John Brown's theory, it's called transcommunality, by the way. So transcommunality says, 
if you want people to come together, you start them off in an organizing campaign. It could be as simple as canvassing. It could be cleanup activities. It could be, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, and this is one of the reasons why union organizing, you know, comes up a lot in my book is it isn't because unions are necessarily more progressive. It's the, it's the action of organizing in and of itself. It's like if the three of us are working, you know, in a restaurant, you know, in the shitty wages, and, and we decide instead of trying to pick one, one another off, let's work together against the boss. Uh, it doesn't mean we're more progressive. It just means we're trying to survive and get something done, right? And that's an example that John Brown would point to as like transcommunality. Um, so, so that's you know that's that's just kind of a brain, kind of a rambling, you know, brainstorm. Your question again, though, people. The exciting thing, y'all, is people are doing this work even as we speak. Paul, thank you so much. The name of the book is An African American and Latinx History of the United States. Uh, 10 years of this, and I believe that this is one of the most crucial books that need to be read today by anyone, whether they're brown, black, white, or anybody, to understand furthermore why our country is in the situation that it's in, but to also understand that we also have contributed in a very positive way, blacks and browns, to this country and how this country is just as much as ours as it is uh, whites. Um, so thank you very much for writing this book. I don't know how to repay you in any other way. This has been extremely enlightening to me, uh, very instructional, informative, and has allowed me to be able to do this podcast with Mike to understand better, have conversations with people um, in a different, deeper perspective. So Paul, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Thank you for your work. You know, it's, it's lovely. Just keep on doing it. I mean, you're, you're lifting our communities up. So, so thank you. That's it for this 25th episode of Brown and Black. We thank Paul Ortiz for stopping by the show and thank you for listening. If you would like to support this podcast, please subscribe to our show and leave a review. Your help will allow us to be heard by many more people. Next week, we're doing a Thanksgiving episode and would like to hear from you what you're grateful for in 2020. Leave us a voicemail at 949-891-2446. That's 949-891-2446. You can also follow us on Brown Black Podcasts on Twitter, Instagram, and you too. Have a great week and we'll talk to you Thanksgiving week on another episode of Brown and Black. Brown and Black.